You're listening to the How to Talk to Girls podcast, where you'll learn step-by-step how to meet and seduce beautiful women, whether you're looking for one night of fun, a week-long fling, or a long-term relationship. I'm your host, Trip, and the episode starts now. Hello and welcome to the How to Talk to Girls podcast. I'm your host, Trip Kramer from tripadvice.com. Welcome back to another episode. I got something really cool today, something interesting. I did a little research and I've been putting together this episode for, oh, I'd say maybe a few weeks now. And it's all things divorce. Okay. So if you are listening to this and you were younger, good. This episode is not just for people who are going through divorce or who have gone through a divorce. This is really for any guy to understand what divorce is like. In fact, this episode is more for people who are not even in a relationship yet or are in a relationship and not even married yet. So you understand what divorce is like. So what I've done is I did a couple of interviews, which you're going to be listening to right now on this episode. I did one with Miss Sarah Maruzzi. And Sarah is a licensed attorney. She worked in Chicago for six years in the largest matrimonial law firm in the country. And it deals with all things family law, especially divorce. And I got her. I got her here and I interviewed her. And she is, well, first of all, she's smart as hell. Okay. She gives a full breakdown of what you need to look out for if you're going through a divorce. Now, I understand that if you're listening to this and you're not even in a relationship yet, you're like, well, why do I need to know all this fine details? Listen, at the end of the day, what you need to understand is what can go into it, like all the things that one would have to worry about if they went through a divorce. So yeah, I understand that there's some good advice here for someone who is maybe going through a divorce, but you should know kind of like, whoa, look at all this stuff that happens when you actually get the divorce. It's very interesting stuff. In fact, so interesting that I pretty much didn't know almost any of the stuff that Sarah was talking about. I knew a little bit of it, but not into the detail that she has gone into, meaning I didn't I wasn't aware of this. I'd never been divorced. My parents are not divorced. I know plenty of people's parents who are divorced, and I know people who are divorced, but you never really go into the nitty gritty. It's not something that people really want to talk about. However, on this episode, not only am I interviewing Sarah, but I also interview a good friend of mine. His name is Jonathan Astley, and he's been on the podcast before. He's a dating coach for women, but he's not here to give you advice on dating advice because you're not a woman and... That's not what he would talk to you about, but he is here to share some wisdom on his divorce. He was divorced 17 years ago, and man, did he go through it. I mean, I didn't just pick any random person who went through a divorce, but someone who has an interesting story. I mean, he had a really good job at the time, two kids. I mean, he was really in it, and it was not the best circumstances. And he gets pretty vulnerable, and he shares with you what happened. So you get to hear from the source of someone who went through it. And also, like I said, from a lawyer who actually helps people with divorce matters and legal issues. Just so you know, this episode you know, is not to give you legal advice. If you need legal advice, you need to reach out to someone in your state or your country in terms of divorce and, and family law and all those things. So it's possible some of the things that she talks about don't necessarily apply 100% to where you live. Just understand that. But she gives an idea of what's going on. So we're going to go over these two interviews right now. 
And if you want to make sure that you don't get a divorce, because really, again, that's the whole thing. I'm trying to put this information out there to hopefully scare you. I want you to be scared of divorce so that now not so you don't get married. I mean, if you don't want to get married, that's fine. That's your choice. But if you do want to get married, I'm not trying to scare you away from marriage, but I am trying to scare you away from finding the wrong woman and to not scare you away for not being able to, to put the energy and time into a relationship, like meaning you should be putting time and energy into a relationship. You should be seeking advice. You should be learning things, listening to these episodes, okay? So you understand how to have a relationship that can lead to being successful. And hopefully, of course, there's never a guarantee, but hopefully you don't end up in the place of a divorce. So if you need help finding that woman, if you need help with advice in terms of how to find the woman for you so you can minimize your chances of getting divorced and not settle for just any woman, then I highly suggest that you reach out to me for personalized custom one-on-one coaching. And you can do that at coachedbytrip.com. That link is in the show notes, or you can just type it in right now so you can remember it for later. Coached by Trip with two Ps.com. There you're going to find an application where you can apply for coaching. So if you are going through a divorce and you are starting to think about what to do to get back in the scene, or maybe you're freshly divorced or have been divorced and you're ready to get back in the scene, or maybe you're just a guy who just want to make sure, wants to make sure that he doesn't end up with the wrong woman and needs help. Let me help you. Don't do this on your own if you don't have to. There is help here. So apply today to see if you qualify to be one of the clients here at Trip Advice. Again, go to coachedbytrip.com. All right. So let's start off with Sarah Maruzzi, who's going to be talking about some of the nitty gritty stuff in terms of the legal scenarios when it comes to divorce. Hey, Sarah, it's good to be talking to you today. I I know that you put together a core list of some of the most important things to look out for as a guy who's going through a divorce. And you know, I know when we first talked, you had a big list. I'm sure it's even bigger, but you put together some of the things that you felt was the most important. So I'd love to hear those and try to help out some of the guys. Sure. Trip. first of all, thank you so much for having me today. It's really good to talk to you and to talk to your uh, listeners about, about these issues. They're so important either when you're thinking about a divorce or when you're going through it. So I'll just jump right in. The first thing that I have seen a lot um, is that the man in the relationship will immediately just, in order to keep the peace, will move out of the house. And you know that, that happens all the time. Some parties just want to keep the peace even when there is none to keep. And they want it so badly that they do things like moving out prematurely. I'm certainly not saying never move out. I'm saying that you should definitely consult with a lawyer on overall strategy before you make a really big decision like that. Whether just, or not you have kids? Whether or not you have kids, yeah. I mean, you do give up a little bit of the power when you move out of the house. It's so much easier for a lawyer to really you know, shape the strategy and shape the direction of your case when that lawyer has the ability to kind of call the shots in terms of when you're making those big moves. Consult before you act. That advice applies generally across the board. It's just so much easier for the lawyer to take your case in the direction you want if they have that degree of control over the moves you're making. So you're saying even if it's getting bad, even if it's getting rough, don't leave the house, don't leave or wherever you guys are, stay there, kind of just get through it because it's going to make you look better. 
not necessarily look better. I mean, it's just so much easier if you go to a lawyer and say, listen, my wife and I are having a lot of problems. It's been getting really bad. I really would like to move out or I would like for us to somehow physically separate. Here are the facts and circumstances of my case. I have kids. I don't have kids. Here's the age of my kids. Those things are all really crucial pieces of information for your lawyer to know so that he or she can advise you properly and potentially even call your wife's lawyer if she's retained somebody and try to work out a way for either one of you to move out. You know, the more planning that you have, the better off you're generally going to be in terms of moving your case in the direction that you want it to go. So just think before you act, consult before you act, don't make an emotional decision. And that goes across the board for so many decisions in a divorce. So I don't know if you put this on your list, but I want to ask you, at what point do you think you should be talking to a lawyer? Like when should that happen? That kind of brings this up right now. It's like, you know, sounds like you should be talking to a lawyer as soon as possible because you never know what can happen and, and what's what things you should be looking out for. So how how soon should it be that you consult with somebody? That's a really good question and I'm happy that you asked it. Candidly, people generally speaking, even if they don't want to admit it, in my experience, they kind of know when things are going south to the point where they need to kind of call it quits. And you know, as soon as you're kind of thinking along those lines, look, divorce is scary, right? And a lot of times it's that monster in the closet. The less you know, the more scary it is. You don't know what's behind the door. It's always a really good idea, even just for your emotional stability and to kind of calm those fears and your anxieties that you may have over the process because it can be daunting to go and talk to someone who specializes in family law. And I cannot stress that enough. Do not go to your run-of-the-mill lawyer who says they specialize in everything or that they've done a few divorces in their past and so they know kind of what they're doing. Please don't do that. Go to somebody who knows the nuances of family law and just kind of educate yourself. And the other thing that I will say is interview a couple of lawyers. Go in and talk to two or three lawyers either... you know, I always tell people to go towards lawyers who have already kind of helped people that you know so that you have some kind of a baseline and there's that trust that's been built because maybe your friend used that person. And go and see what kind of tailored advice those lawyers will all give you. You can go to two, three different lawyers and you could get totally different advice across the board because it's fluid and it's just not black and white. But the more that you know, the less scary it becomes, right? And I think that knowledge is power and you being able to get an early jumpstart on that knowledge base is going to make you feel more empowered through your divorce process. Okay, cool. Got it. So definitely when... Right when things are starting to get kind of fired up and you feel like it could be going to that place, uh, not a bad idea to start talking to people, doing some interviews and, and seeing who's good for you. Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right, continue with your list. So the next thing that I will say, and typically speaking, I don't talk about parties to a divorce as either a man or a woman, right? I will talk to them in terms of uh, you're the moneyed spouse or you're the non-moneyed spouse or you're the primary parent or the non-primary parent. But you know, considering your listeners are primarily men. I'm going to talk about this um, in terms of the man is the moneyed spouse, right? So in this case is men, do not lie about your finances. In Cook County, every litigant to a divorce action has to complete something that's called a financial affidavit. And that's a sworn document that lists all of your assets, income, and liabilities. And Illinois law requires litigants to update this affidavit from time to time, okay, throughout your case, depending on how long it's pending. If you're caught lying on this financial affidavit, there could be some serious financial sanctions imposed upon you. 
And at the very least, even if you don't get those sanctions slapped on you, you will lose credibility with your judge, okay? And in litigation, credibility is gold. It's really the only thing that you've got between you and a judge for that judge to be able to look you in the eye and go, okay, I can buy what you're saying and I'm going to go with it. Remember that your judge doesn't know you from Adam, right? So it's really important that your judge feels that he or she can rely on you to provide accurate information. And that goes for issues relating to your finances and also your children's interests, okay? You don't want to be caught lying especially on your finances when it's pretty easy to determine whether or not you're hiding something or you're not being totally honest, there's a discovery process. So they're going to ask for documents and other information from you. And they're going to be able to fact check what you're saying on that financial affidavit. So don't lie. Okay. Kind of going along uh, that financial path here, the next piece of advice that I will give you guys is do not spend fees on a dispute that even if you were to win that fight will yield you less than what you spent on legal fees or gets you to basically break even after you spent money on your lawyer. People make this mistake very often. Please don't sweat the small stuff. Try and keep your perspective. Don't let your emotions run your legal decision-making. I mean, you're, you're the client and your lawyer is the one who's providing you advice. But in the end, you, the client, you're going to be the one that calls the shots. And so I'm begging you not to rack up your bill over those small quarrels. They will cost you a lot over time. And this goes not only... An example of a small quarrel. Oh gosh, personal property is a huge huge one. People, you know, they have emotional connections to their pieces of property that they've accumulated over the course of their marriage. And I'm certainly not saying that you can't get emotional. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that are worth fighting for. There certainly are. But when you start fighting over, you know, a couch or <laughs> pots and pans or something to that effect, you are really going to be racking up a lot of legal fees. And it's not just your legal fees trip, because in the state of Illinois, both parties have the right to representation. And that goes for the wage earning spouse and the stay-at-home spouse. Okay. So we have something called level the playing field, which is an attempt by our legislature to basically allow the moneyed spouse's attorney's fees. Uh, non-moneyed spouse, excuse me, their attorney's fees to be paid by the person who's making the money so that both parties have have the same access to legal services. And so you could end up in these battles paying not only for your lawyer, but for your spouse's legal fees as well to fight over these things. So just be super cautious about what you're fighting over. Now, who is the person who's supposed to pay for their spouse's legal fees? That's the primary... What was it, the primary... The, the wage earner, right? The moneyed spouse. So, so the typically, making the most money is the one who's responsible for paying part of the legal fees of the other partner. Part or all, yes, part or all of the fees of the of their partner, because you know, you typically it will come out of the, out of the marital estate. So, any money, typically speaking, that you are earning during the marriage is going to be considered marital money, and we'll talk more about this in a minute. So, a lot of the times, though, let's again say that the man is the the wage earning spouse here. A lot of times the man will say, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I have to pay for my wife's attorney's fees when she's the one that's filing all these things. She's the one that's kind of going on the offense and I'm just on the defense here. And what lawyers will say is, well, you know, it's not really you paying. It's coming out of the marital pot of money. But look, at the end of the day, if you're making the paycheck, it's it's going to feel like it's your money, right? Even though it's it's the marital pot um, that it's coming from. So yes, just be very cautious about the battles that you are, are choosing. And just be really wise in terms of your strategy with your lawyer. Okay, that's good advice. I like that. What else you got? So maintenance and child support. Let's talk about that just for a quick second. It is a really, really hot button issue for a lot of people who are are the ones earning the money. 
As the wage earner, you need to be strategizing with your lawyers about the different ways that support can be structured, okay? I want to hit maintenance because that's really something that can be molded in many different ways. For instance, it can be modifiable in the future. It can be terminated after a certain amount of time, or it can be reviewable after a certain amount of time. And many many wage-earning spouses are just super concerned about paying their spouse maintenance. It's just twisting the knife, right? They're already leaving me and then I have to pay them. Or they are they cheated on me and I have to pay them. Illinois is a no-fault state. The law doesn't care if she cheated on you. If you are the wage-earning spouse and there are certain requirements that are met and you have to pay maintenance, you have to pay maintenance. That's how it goes. There's a lot of flexibility in maintenance, like I said. And there's a lot of factors that a court's going to consider in determining maintenance. Those factors include things like the income that was earned by both parties during the marriage, the length of your marriage, the lifestyle that you guys enjoyed during your marriage. Keep in mind, just like cheating isn't really going to be a factor, your spouse being unemployed when he or she could technically be working does not automatically block your spouse's request for maintenance. And a lot of people get really, really fired up about that. You know, We never agreed that she would just stay at home and care for the kids and never go back to work. Well, guess what? I'm really sorry, but if you decided to stay with your spouse when she didn't go back to work after your kids were in school full-time, and it's been 10, 15 years now since she's been working, that's something that's going to play in your spouse's favor, whether you think it's right or wrong in terms of them fighting for alimony maintenance. And so just be really cautious, kind of even in your marriage, I hate to say this, but if you're not even thinking about divorce, but you are in a situation where your spouse is not working, And it was never your agreement in your eyes that your spouse would continue to stay at home indefinitely after your kids were born or under any set of circumstances. Just be very cautious um, and understand that the law is not going to side with you if you decide to stay with that person for a long period of time in terms of your fight on the maintenance, formerly called alimony fight. Okay, So be, be conscious of that. The other thing I will say is the strategy with your lawyer on this is so important. If your wife is requesting lump sum maintenance, i.e. for it all to be paid upfront rather than on a monthly basis, while you may think, and a lot of men do, they think that it's best because they just kind of want it over and done with. Here, take this chunk of money and leave me alone. Your lawyer may advise you to pay it monthly instead based on the facts and circumstances of your particular case. For example, maybe your future income is likely to decrease And you may therefore be entitled to a decrease in your maintenance payments in the future. Why would you pay all of it upfront if over time it's going to decrease under the, under the eyes of the law, right? So it's just really important that you start to strategize as quickly as possible on these types of things. Now, in terms of paying, is alimony just, that's, that's not child support, right? It's not child support. That's correct. So alimony um, is now called maintenance, and that is totally separate and apart from paying child support. Mm-hmm. And the courts will decide, or the judge will decide how long you'll be paying that for? Is That's right. That's right. Okay. So typically speaking, if, if you are the moneyed spouse, you will pay some type of temporary maintenance. And temporary means kind of during the pendency of your case, right? But then you'll move on in the final um, stages of your divorce when you're trying to wrap things up in your final agreement what that more permanent structure of your maintenance will look like. And I don't mean permanent in a sense of it will go on forever and ever. Some people are permanent maintenance candidates, okay? Meaning that they're going to be getting maintenance for you know the the rest of time until something changes like your husband retires, right? But that's typically speaking very, very long marriages, like over 20 years. 
So yes, the judge is going to look at a variety of factors and determine not only the amount of maintenance to be paid, but also how long it's to be paid for. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. A lot of things to look at here, which is why you definitely got to hire someone and do it right. Please do. Yes. There's so many nuances and, and a lot of things can get missed. And I will tell you that a lot of the litigation that I was involved in didn't just stem from pre-decree, what we call pre-divorce, right? Pre-decree litigation. It was post-decree litigation that was a lot of times caused by not so good lawyering and gaps that were not filled um, in their divorce decrees that were just causing major problems later down the road. And that can cost you a lot of money to fix those things. Yeah. Let me ask ask you a personal question. Of course. Are you married? I am not. Are you single? I am. So the fact that you've been doing this for six years in terms of family law, Mm -hmm. matrimonial law, divorce and all that, has that scared you at all? Just seeing all this? Because now just hearing about this, it scares me. Not to the point where it's going to make me avoid marriage, but I can just imagine if I'm like, whoa, this is crazy and Mm -hmm. you're living in it, Mm -hmm. does it scare you? That's a good question. I get asked that all the time. It doesn't scare me. It opens my eyes. To me... It's almost unfair. You know, when I was going through all of this, uh, kind of learning the ropes, I started to think about how unfair it was that, you know, when you're thinking about getting married, you're just kind of in this happy la la land and you're excited about the next chapter in your life. And how could you go into such a big commitment without even having your eyes open as to what that commitment really means if it goes south, right? So for me, it doesn't scare me. It just, I feel lucky that my eyes are open enough to kind of know what to look out for and ways to protect myself. And ways to protect yourself, you know, the the most simple one is a prenup. And we do prenups and postnups after divorce agreements all the time. They're very popular. I would say they're actually increasing in popularity. Um, Maybe not in the younger people because younger people, they tend to tell me all the time, well, I don't have anything to protect and neither does he or, you know, vice versa. And to me, that's such a funny way to look at prenups and postnups because you're not protecting necessarily all the time what you have right now. What you're really doing is protecting the wealth that you will build in the future. And so the timing couldn't be better to get a prenup than when you kind of, quote unquote, don't have much or have nothing to your name because you are certainly going to build retirement. You are going to continue to earn wages. You are potentially going to open businesses in the future. And those things are all things that can be protected as your non-marital or separate property. And that kind of brings me to my last point in terms of distinguishing marital and non-marital property. This is so important. Illinois is an equitable distribution state, okay? Equitable does not necessarily mean a 50-50 split, though oftentimes we do see things split 50-50, okay? There's an emphasis on fair or balanced property division. And there's a host of factors considered in dividing property. Uh, For example, the age of the spouses, the length of your marriage, each spouse's respective financial and homemaking contributions, your respective abilities to earn a living in the future, right? So there's two buckets, let's say, of property. If property is deemed to be non-marital, that means it belongs only to the party owning it. And it's not going to be divided between the two of you upon divorce, okay? And the key factor in determining what property is marital and non-marital is when and how the property was acquired, okay? Generally, anything acquired during your marriage, absent some kind of an agreement to the contrary, is going to be marital property. I.e., if a spouse starts a business during the marriage, it's likely marital, subject to equitable division between the two of you. The fact that a spouse owns a business individually doesn't matter, and that's a common misconception. 
The fact that he or she launched that business during the marriage is what counts, okay? And then the next step would be to value that business, for instance, so that that value can be equitably distributed. And that's why it's so important to have a family law attorney, right? Because they're going to be knowledgeable in that valuation process. They're going to have that background and expertise and they work with some of the most renowned business valuators in the country, okay? They have those business relationships with those people. They know who to go to. Property acquired by a spouse before the marriage or inherited by a spouse or gifted to a spouse individually is usually that spouse's non-marital property, okay? And there are exceptions that can turn that property into marital property. We call it transmutation. So how that property was acquired and then held or handled during the marriage needs really close analysis. This is the biggest thing I can tell you guys, okay? If you have something that would otherwise be non-marital property, like you inherited a bunch of money from your parents, let's say, you do not want to commingle that money, okay? Do not put that into a joint account or money that money into an account where marital money, i.e. your paycheck or your spouse's paycheck is being held, okay? Commingling is basically when one spouse's separate property is mixed with marital property. We don't want that to happen. We want it to be a really clean account where your lawyer can go, okay, wife's lawyer, here is the deposit slip for when his inheritance came in to this account and no money came into this account other than that money. And therefore, it's clean. It's traceable. That is his non-marital. She doesn't get to touch it. Okay. Because it goes into, into his separate bank account. That separate is not, bank not account. Marital. Yes. And that goes as far as put it in your own name and also do not put any other money in there. Don't touch it. You can take money out of it. That money can be, you know, lost and maybe it's just, you know, uh, contributed to a marital property. Like you, you put, take some money out of there and you put it as a down payment on, on your house and the house is marital. Okay. There's other things that can kind of arguments that can be made about that money that's contributed. You can get some contribution credit to that, to that house, that marital piece of property. But for the most part, the one thing you want to look out for is do not put any additional money into that account because then you get into a tracing nightmare in terms of, okay, there was $100,000 in this account. And then let's see all these deposits into the account and try and separate those things from each other. And it can be more complicated than you would think. And it's going to rack up your attorney's fees. You don't want your attorneys to have to even go through that exercise. Keep it separate. Okay. And does it look shady if you're like putting money into this separate account and not into the marital account throughout the marriage? As long as you are not taking money that would otherwise be marital and siphoning it into a different account, no, you're not going to look shady because you're going to be able to have documents to prove, okay, here's the closing of my father's estate, right? Here's the the chunk of change that came directly from the closing of my father's estate into my separate bank account. No lawyer on the face of the planet, if you've got that kind of clean documentation, is going to be able to make you look slimy because you're not siphoning money from what would otherwise be the marital estate and trying to make it look, look like it's yours that can't be touched. But when you get married, I thought everything is already split 50-50. So even if you have a separate bank account with money that's in there from things that you did, that doesn't belong half to your partner? So money that is acquired during your marriage that is not gifted or inherited by you is typically going to be marital money. So you're correct in a sense that that money is subject to equitable division. It's subject to to what's going to be split. But if you have another bank account that's opened either pre-marriage, okay, money that you acquired before the marriage, or money that you acquired during the marriage in, you know, one of the ways that makes it non-marital, i.e., it was gifted to you or you inherited it, 
That stuff doesn't need to be touched, okay? She doesn't get part of that if you keep it clean. And there is nothing more important in terms of trying to prove your non-marital claims than making sure that you keep your documentation. A lot of banks only go seven years back. So if you've been married for 15 years and you're going back and trying to figure out how you can show the money going into that account and where it came from and trying to show that it was really inherited or gifted to you, that can be tough if you don't kind of have those, those documents already stored. It's a big homework project and the documents are not always going to be there by the time you need them. So what I would say is if you're thinking about getting married or if you've already gotten married and you can go and find those documents and keep them in a safe place, go and do that. It's going to really help you in the long run if anything happens in the future, because we never know, where you can just kind of show up at your lawyer's office with those documents and say, here's my non-marital claims. Here's where the money came from. And if you need anything else, let me know. That will help your lawyer tremendously, tremendously. Got it. Got it. Cool. What else, Sarah? So I think now if I can just have two more minutes to kind of go through some very broad brush, 30,000 feet advice for anyone who's going through a divorce, okay? I've already touched on consulting with someone you know, with at least two to three experienced family law lawyers. And I can't stress that enough, okay? You're probably going to pay for the, for the better lawyers. You're going to pay a consultation fee. Pay it. It's worth it. If you go cheap, you'll get cheap. You want customized real advice that applies to your specific family and your situation. And oftentimes to get that, you're going to probably pay a consultation fee because these people are good and they know what they're doing. Do that, okay? It, it, will, it will really be a good use of your time and your money. The other thing I will say is really beware of the lawyer who advertises himself or herself as someone who advocates for dads or for men. The truth is good family law lawyers represent all types of clients. They are jacks of all trade and someone who is holding themselves out to be a lawyer for a particular gender or a particular demographic is really just using that as an ad- advertising ploy. And it, and it works. You know, We see that all the time, like father's rights and advocating for men. At the end of the day, someone who's good, they're going to be able to help you, okay? Whether you are the father, whether you are the mother, whether you work or don't work, it, it doesn't matter. They're going to be able to, to help you because they're a jack of all trades. So just be weary of that, okay? The third thing I will say here is to be open and honest with your lawyer at all times, okay? And I know this is hard. I know some stuff can be really embarrassing. And candidly, this is going to sound crude, but I don't care if it's a particular fetish that you have. I don't care if it's you admitting that you weren't the best father. I don't care what it is that you have to admit to. An addiction, always, always be open and honest because there is nothing worse from a lawyer's perspective than getting hit out of left field with something that your own client didn't tell you and you're hearing it in court from opposing counsel for the first time. The more that we can be there for it to help you. That's exactly correct. That's exactly right. So we want to help you. We want to protect you, okay? We also, let's just be honest, we want to make sure we're doing our jobs really well. We don't want to look stupid, okay? So when we go into court and someone hits us with something for the first time and it's you know we don't have time to prepare or get the background on it, that's troubling. And a lot of times, you know, something that's bad in your eyes or that you're scared of, we see this stuff all the time. We know how to navigate this for you. Let us help you. Okay. Let us help you. The fourth and last thing that I will tell you is please remember you are getting divorced, not your children. Okay. Both mothers and fathers make this mistake often. They put their children in the middle of their divorce and it's not appropriate. And it will not be tolerated by your judge. And if you have a really good family law lawyer, it's not going to be tolerated by your lawyer either, okay? We have fired clients at my firm for basically not putting their child's interests 
uh, first and for being selfish and letting their emotions get the best of them in terms of putting their children in, in the middle of their divorce. It's, it's not something that you want to do. It damages your children in ways then, uh, that most of us <laughs> can't possibly imagine. And it just makes you look bad as a parent. You don't want to put your own legal agenda before the needs of your kids. And if you think that it won't come out, trust me, most of the time it does. It's pretty transparent. There can be custody evaluations that are ordered or agreed to in your case. And those custody evaluators are really, really good at kind of snuffing out those issues in terms of whether their kids are being affected by the parents putting them in the middle. It will come out. You don't want to look like the bad guy and you don't want your kids to remember you as the person who put them under that kind of pressure, okay? So just really focus on your children. And you know what? A lot of kids are are placed in therapy during a divorce and a lot of parents um, voluntarily go into therapy during the divorce. And I am 100% for that. It is the most challenging, emotionally and physically draining process that most people will ever, ever go through. And therapy is something that just gets your head right, puts you in a good headspace. And when you're the best person that you can be, it makes you the best divorce litigant, the best father, the best friend that you can be. And it really just makes you that well-rounded person to the extent that you can be when you need to hold yourself together during your divorce. And I guess that's kind of what I'll leave you with. Awesome. Sarah, this was fantastic. Great information here. Uh, really just appreciate you coming on and giving your wisdom and your knowledge and just being able to help any guys out that are listening. So thanks so much. And one last question for you. Maybe okay. it's a it's a quick answer, maybe not. Do you advise men and women to get a prenup? Do you say to people, you should get a prenup or that is something that you think is going to be the best option before getting married? So look, this is a very personal question. So I will answer it from my point of view, okay? Not everyone's going to agree with me. I think, yeah, I, I think absolutely you should get a prenup. Why? Okay, from my perspective... I just as much as I don't want somebody to marry me for my money, I don't want somebody to stay with me because they're afraid that they're going to have to have some kind of big payout if they leave me. I want someone to only be with me if they really want to be with me. So it goes both ways. Let's get married for the right reasons. Let's get married because we want to be together. And guess what? I can tell you right now that just getting married is not going to prevent somebody from cheating on you. And a piece of paper like a prenup in my opinion, will go a long way in terms of making sure that somebody is with you because they really want to be with you. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that is the one piece of paper that kind of can reassure you that someone's with you to be with you. The, the marriage piece of paper, right? The marriage certificate is not going to be the thing that holds you together. In my opinion, if someone wants to cheat, they're going to cheat. If someone wants to leave, they're going to leave. It makes it just a little bit more crystal clear, in my opinion, why somebody is with you if you have a prenuptial agreement, because they're not afraid of, you know, either not having to, they're not afraid of having to have a big payout at the end of the day. If they're the moneyed spouse, oh my gosh, if I leave this person, I'm going to have to pay them maintenance, right? It's something that you can just really think through and negotiate. And you can kind of see where each of you are coming from in terms of what's important to you in a marriage through the negotiation process. And yes, it's awkward. It's awkward. It's a weird process to go through. It's it's not super organic, but it puts things in perspective and it kind of brings you guys back to why you're really getting married. And I think it's the one piece of paper that does kind of count in, in terms of why you guys are doing what you're doing. So yeah, in, in my in my opinion, that's the piece of paper that matters and you should you should do it and just make sure that you guys are on the same page about everything. I think it's helpful. 
Cool. Got it. That's great advice. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Man, interesting, right? Interesting stuff there. Uh, Sarah gave some great information and really shared with us kind of what goes on. I hope that you were able to follow. I know that there's kind of a lot of information there. But now you kind of heard of some of the the legal scenarios in terms of what happens when you get a divorce. But what's it like when someone actually goes through it? Well, I have an interview here with my friend Jonathan, who's going to tell you all about that. He's going to tell you what it was like on a financial level, emotional level, and what he had to go through and where he is now. So check it out. So Jonathan, you are 56, is that correct? 57. (laughs) 57. I'm just trying to be nice here. (laughs) (laughs) So how many years ago were you divorced? It's over 15 years ago. I just literally, I, I mean, it was like barely 40 years old when it happened. Do you think it still affects you to this day? What I mean is, does it still affect you in terms of the way you live your life financially and emotionally? Like, is it something that you think is, is still affecting you to this day, 16 or 17 years later? Not directly. I think early on, I mean, and early on, it had some huge effects in my life. I think at this point, you, you reach a level where it's, you've unraveled the tapestry of your old life and you've built a new one. I mean, on some level, divorce in and of itself affects everyone financially. So, I mean, even to this day, I have the repercussions of what happened because when you build wealth with someone else, or build assets with someone else and split it. Well, now you, you know, I mean, you've got less assets. So on some level, it still has affected me. But for the most part, I'd say for the last five, six, seven, eight years, it hasn't really been that big of a deal. And certainly, I'll be candid with you, I'm single and dating. And at my age demographic, if you're not divorced, something's wrong with you. Meaning, <laughs> you know, if anyone's not married at this age, there's something wrong with you. So yeah, like you, you meet a woman who's you know in her forties or fifties, and you're like, wait, you haven't been divorced? You've been single this whole time? You never got married? Like that's you're saying that's more rare. Yeah, that's I I would say seventy five percent of the population over forty five years old that are single and dating are most likely divorced. So whenever you do come across that never married, you're like, okay, what's wrong with them? And I'm not saying, I mean, that's a judgment, but I'm saying it goes in the back of your mind. Sure, sure. So maybe you can give us the cliff notes of what stood out when you went through your divorce. You know, Maybe you can start telling us how it was for you when it first started. Maybe you can even tell us if you, if you feel comfortable sharing what, what caused it. Sure. And then maybe we can go through the whole process of what it was like to go through it. Hiring the lawyer. I know that you had two kids at that point. I know that you were the moneymaker in the family. I know that you had a lot of assets. You know, we're friends. So I know you've told me this before, but correct me if I'm wrong. You even went kind of broke after? Or you yeah, lost yeah, a yeah. lot of money after? Like it was very struggle. It was a struggle for you financially. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So maybe we can start from the beginning here. So... Okay, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but I 
I married a woman because I, it was like programming. I was told to you know, go to college, get a job, meet a girl, get married, buy a house, start a family. I was following the programming. And I, and I met you know, like a woman who was relatively stable. And sure enough, our relationship was not really a very healthy one. And in fact, in our particular case, there was little or no physical intimacy. And I was desperate for attention. And the, the last year of our marriage, I was incredibly belligerent. I was going out drinking a lot and I was meeting women in bars. And I was just, because I was, you know, I, in my marriage, we slept in separate bedrooms and we weren't intimate for years and years and years. So, and by the way, that's not an uncommon tale. I got caught cheating. I'm not proud of it. Wasn't right, but I did. And we chose to separate and then file for... How'd you get caught? I allowed myself to get caught, to be honest with you. I was so like... My my behavior was so ridiculously belligerent. I went to a company Christmas party. I didn't bring my wife. I hooked up with some girl afterward. You know, like... I, my, I wasn't coming home. For the last six months before I moved out, I literally wasn't coming home. I was like out late and staying out every night. And I don't want to belabor on that. What happened was that we agreed, you know, I got caught and I owned it and we agreed to get a divorce and we went down the path of seeking attorneys. And I happened to know someone who was an attorney. So I went to him and got some advice. And at the same time that this was happening, I lost my quarter million dollar a year job. So this is just a coincidence. Honestly, I kind of wondered, I told my boss I was getting a divorce and a Three weeks later, he let me go. Like, I don't know if there was even a correlation there. So my advice to anyone listening, keep very quiet, especially in your professional life, uh, about what's going on at home. Because I was just, you know, I, I was saying it in passing to my boss. And then three weeks later, and what I felt, what, and I remembered in the now, later after the fact, I remember him telling me about one of the, a, a different employee who went through a divorce and what it was a nightmare for the company to go through that. So I wonder if that was a reason why he didn't lay me off. He demoted my my job. And then I left the company six months later. The process of getting attorneys, and at first we were acting kind of amicable. But now that I lost my job, it became a real nightmare because there was an expectation on her part to live a certain lifestyle. And she started to watch every show about divorce. And at the time, there was this such an adversarial thing about men and men are supposed to do this and a woman who takes care of a home. In fact, Dr. Phil had an episode saying a woman who takes care of children at home is worth a quarter million dollars a year. So she felt she was entitled to a significant amount of money that I was no longer making. And I was trying to get a new job at that time. So it was a clusterfuck because not only was there a big fight of how much money she wanted to get for alimony and child support, I wasn't making any money at that time. I mean, I stopped making, well, I didn't stop right away, but months and months later on down the road. So it became very contentious. And when a divorce becomes, you know, here's the thing, the minute money is involved, people become very adversarial. It becomes it, it becomes a very selfish way of approaching the process, which kind of makes me think, Trip, 
how do poor people get divorced? You know, <laughs> I mean, like if if two people have very little money, like you're saying, like like it must yeah, be easy. It's got to be easy, but the minute there's like there's nothing to split up. There's nothing. Yeah. Well, unless well, we, the money is the easy part, but the kids is not. No, be the and easy that's part. another piece that became very adversarial. Although she was very accommodating, wanted me to have time, and in her particular case, it was also you know, me spending time with the children was also a break for her. So we did the traditional, you know, every other weekend and Wednesday kind of thing. But nowadays, most people, most people are getting divorced these days if they have young children are almost choosing a 50-50 split. However, here's the thing. How much child support is based on how much time you have with a child. So that's one of the reasons why some women who want more money are being very adversarial. And it's not just women. I mean, this is this goes both ways. But I'm saying in my particular case, I know, or at least people that I know, women wanted more time because they got more money out of it. And uh, it was very contentious for about two years, which deeply affected me. Two, wait, two years? You went through a divorce? It took two years? Yeah, there was, the, there was a couple things. Splitting the IRA and the 401k plan was a little bit messy. And we weren't coming up with agreements. And, and again, the money part was, was holding it up. So it took a good two years before we had kind of split up. The one thing is we did split up our assets fairly quickly and we and we split our the 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 net worth quickly, but it was that alimony child support that was a constant battle. In fact, that battle went on for for another 3 or 4 years after that. And I got to tell you, it affected me emotionally deeply. It was a constant argumentative and one side versus the other side and sadly the kids are hearing all this you know whether you you know they're they're getting it in the background noise so to speak so divorce so often is so unfair to the children it, it is it is radically unfair to the children when two people are going through an adversarial divorce when you say adversarial what what does that they're mean fighting with one another it's like there're two people like uh, I have my perception of what need is fair, and they have like not not amicable. not amicable. Exactly. Yeah. Well, adversarial meaning fighting with one another or not being amicable with one another. And you know, it's interesting. You go into a marriage having no clue what the marriage means, but boy, you learn everything about a marriage when you're in divorce court. And I highly recommend before two people ever get married <laughs> is go spend a week in divorce court and listening to all those people argue and you're going to learn what marriage is all about. I heard that. And I'm not saying this is a generalization. I'm just saying this is a possibility. Yeah. You know, you're marrying someone because you love them. You're falling in love with somebody. But what could happen is you could get a divorce. And if that happens... You might be divorcing someone very different from the person that you married. You might not expect them to, I don't know, fight, fight fair. or be so aggressive. You might think they they might be yeah. right. It's like almost like you're like, whoa, who is this person? Again, I'm not saying that's going to happen with every divorce, but it uh, it is definitely a possibility. Well, even think about those people that get makes it yeah, scary. Think about even pe- people that sign prenuptial agreements before they get married. I mean. 
even those particular cases where there, it could be fought against what was already agreed upon before marriage. So, you know, it's hard to say because people, they change radically when money's involved, sadly. Well, I mean, that's the lifeblood, right? It's like, well, and, and in my particular case, you know, for all the bad, there was a lot of good that came out of it. And what I mean to say is uh, eventually my... Oh, that's interesting. Well, eventually my relationship with my ex healed. I actually dated a woman who was a marriage and family therapist. And she, she encouraged me hugely to heal my relationship with my ex. And so... And because of her encouragement, I start, you know, we started to be kinder and nicer to one another. And then when we both suffered, I mean, I guess I'm going to bring it up since I just said it. My ex and I suffered the loss of one of our children, and that actually brought us closer together as well. I mean, it's it's now been 14 years ago when we got divorced, right? But and then my son passed away last year. But we are very amicable to one another now. Yeah. Yeah, and that can happen right over time. I mean, you did, you did share life together, and more importantly, you know, you, you did raise two kids yeah. together, and so that's interesting. How even after all these years, you guys are still, you know, cool with yeah. each other. But it wasn't um, that way at first. But, it took uh, a lot of work, and I got to tell you, my girlfriend at the time was a huge proponent of just go be amical, be loving, stop being adversarial, and I just started to be nicer. And after about two or three years of just being nicer, it's it's hard. It's like it was hard for her to fight me because all I was being was nice and and being agreeable and amicable and everything. I mean, I wasn't going to compromise a boundary per se, but I certainly was being a lot more loving and kind, and it paid dividends later on down the road. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, that's all lovely, but let's go back to the, the the craziness of it all. So, all right. You unfortunately you cheated. You got caught. You 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 both fell out of love. You shouldn't have gotten married in the first place. And I'm saying that because that's what you've told me in the past. And you guys are are fighting. It's not amicable. You're going through this tooth and nail. It was a process of two years. Now you're divorced. You're 42 years old. What's, what's your life like? What are you thinking? It's over. Well, I mean, for the long... What happened with custody, by the well, way? Our custody was we had joint custody. In other words, we you know, had 50-50 custody when it came to decision-making. But she had, she had physical custody about 80% of the time. And, and and I had free reign to see my kids whenever I wanted. So if I wanted more, that wasn't an issue. And because my living situation changed, because not only did I lose my job, the stock market crash in 2008 wiped me out financially of the nest egg I had after the divorce. So I was living in a tiny dump you know, for, a while, for quite some time. And and just for the record, for those listening, I mean, at one point she and I lived in a two million dollar home. So I went from a multi million dollar home in the one of the most expensive neighborhoods in where I live to, you know, practically moving in with my mom and dad. That's what it felt like, you know, for quite some time. Like in other words, it was a tiny one bedroom place. Yeah. And emotionally, I was 
I was struggling both from the loss of the marriage, but also the loss of my professional identity. And it's not uncommon. Divorce causes men to be, oftentimes men or women, to be very lax in their professional life. Now, in my particular case, it happened so quickly. But what I mean to say is it can affect your professional life and your performance and how you perform professionally. So a lot of men in particular and you know, have lost their jobs later on down the road and then have dealt with the financial dynamic of something that they can't contribute to anymore. And the other thing is, and I hear this a lot from a, the men, I was living, in my particular case, I was living off of savings at one point with her, but for a lot of guys, let's just let's just make up a number. You're making ten grand a year personally, and now you have a divorce and you've got kids and everything. So you're giving four or five thousand a month to someone else, which leaves you now a half of what you make, if not less than half of what you make, for you to survive off of. And so it becomes incredibly hard to survive because you're giving such a big chunk for someone else's survival. And your children. And by the way, I had never an issue with child support. They were my children. I had, I wanted to take care of them. The hard part was the alimony piece. And in her particular case, she wasn't working at the time because I was taking care of everything. So, and she had her own anger because she had to go back to work to make money to make ends meet. So divorce gets really ugly because all of a sudden you're living off of one income. And now you're having to live off of half of what you used to make before. Sounds tough. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a nightmare for a year. Sounds really tough. Five to six full years to really heal from the emotional, physical effects of this unwinding of a life you once had before and then having to rebuild life with, you know, for yourself again. How long were you married? married? 12 years and yeah, 12 years. Okay. So you got married at 28, yeah, 29 and that's yeah. 41, 42, something like that. So now where are you? <laughs> well, I'm sitting in a chair talking to you. <laughs> um, where am I? I'm, I've rebuilt my life professionally. In fact, I completely changed professions. Um, and I'm, I'm self-employed now because I don't ever want to be in a position where someone else is in charge of my destiny. I'd much rather be in charge of my own destiny. I was in a significant relationship for a while, a six-year relationship that ended a couple years ago. And um, I'm back out there dating, get my advice from you often. <laughs> you always help me out. In fact, uh, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm actually excited about someone I'm about to meet. So. And you've helped me along the way. And I'm in a good place emotionally. And the divorce, as painful as it was, I learned really a lot about, like I said, relationships and what marriage was all about well after the fact. And so that's why when I said to you earlier, jokingly, maybe spend time at divorce court before you ever get married. (laughs) I think when you're 28 years old, you have no clue how to really be in a, at least I didn't have a clue how to really be in a relationship with someone because I was practically a baby back then. And now I've gained a lot of wisdom through those, all these experiences. And the one most important thing I feel 
that is valuable for all of us to establish is is to know that you're going to get through this. You know, things are, you know, you're going to have some bad days and you're going to have some good days and you're going to get through it. And do your best not to fight. If you can, try to always be kind. I, I wished I could have done that sooner, even though it was adversarial. Fighting does nothing but create aggravation. And expecting someone else to think the way you do is a recipe for disaster. That is never, ever going to work. No one's going to think the way you think. And I wished I learned that sooner rather than later, if that made sense. Yeah, it does. It does. No, that's that's good wisdom there. Are there any regrets? Oh, yeah. I wished I... I a couple things. I, I wish I didn't, wasn't unfaithful. I wish maybe, you know, we either ended the relationship much sooner or I worked on the relationship much sooner. I certainly wished I spent more time with my children that there was um, this adversarial piece really affected how I spent time with my children. And it's very sad that that happens. I, and when I say regret, it's I recognize I wished I could have done things better, but I don't want to beat myself up for it either. I don't beat myself up. I just wished I did things better. So what do you think your biggest piece of advice would be for guys who are out there, who are dating, who are interested in getting married and want to do it? What would you tell them? Well, I, I think first and foremost is do not take marriage lightly. This is a big commitment and contract. And so when I got married, it, you know, we even went to a pastor and had to do this marriage counseling kind of thing, which was such a joke because it was like we had filled out a couple forms and met with the counselor. It was like more of a rubber stamp. And I wish I took that more seriously. But today, I would encourage everybody to read the book, Eight Dates, by oh, John Gottman, and, um, and which I know you're familiar with that book, and actually practice what is taught in that book because it will help you determine if you're really with a partner or you know with someone that has longevity to it or a short-term relationship. And I highly recommend sure. that book. I, I would, in fact, anyone who I consider remarriage, we're doing all the exercises in this book before I ever consider marrying someone else. So you know what you're getting yourself yeah. into. Cool. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I just want to thank you. And I just appreciate the, the wonderful wisdom you give out to your community and certainly to me personally. So I just want to say thank you to my friend. You're welcome. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing. I know that you know it's been many years since your divorce, so it's probably easier to talk about now, but I, I understand it was definitely a hard time and I think it would be hard for a lot of people to share it but you did and and we thank you for it so thanks Jonathan thank you.